Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. A man in our church invited a lady to come to one of our services. On the way, he told her, Now, Pastor Mike doesn't preach fire and brimstone. He's more like lightning and thunder. So that Sunday morning, he had no idea what I was going to do, but I spoke on Psalm 29. The point of Psalm 29 is lightning and thunder. So he turns to her and said, see, I told you he preaches lightning and thunder. Now the point of that passage is that lightning and thunder reminds us of the power of God. Now, there's more to that story. As a matter of fact, the psalmist in several places talks about the fact that the heavens declare the glory of God or something similar to that. And then there there are psalms, a lot of them, that talk about the fact that we not only can see the Lord in creation, we can also see the Lord in his word. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the scriptures declare the grace of God. So there are psalms like that that even mention both. And that's one of the psalms I want us to look at. And here's the point. When you look at the creation and see the Lord, what do you see and how do you respond to that? When you open the scripture and you see the Lord, what should be our response to that? And who should be responding? Well, all of that is answered in Psalm 33. So will you turn with me to Psalm 33? Now, rather than read the whole passage at once, as I very often do, usually do, I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to first sort of outline the passage, and then we're going to look at it section by section. Uh, I want you to notice the first verse. He says, Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous. So who's he talking to? Believers. Now look over at verse 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Now who's he talking to? He's talking to everybody. Now look at verse 20. Our souls wait for the Lord. So it seems to me that he's talking first to believers, then to everybody, and he concludes by making some kind of a commitment, which we will get to in a minute. He calls, or either I should say he commands, all believers to rejoice in the Lord, to praise him in verse 1. He calls all the earth to fear the Lord, beginning in verse 8. And he makes a commitment to the Lord, beginning in verse 20. Now the other thing I want you to notice 
is that in each of these cases, he's talking about the word of the Lord and creation. For example, look at verse 4, where he's talking to believers, he says, for the word of the Lord is right, and his work, which is talking about creation, is done in truth. Or look at verse 9. Now he's talking to all the world, and he says, he spoke, and it was done, which is another way of talking about his word and his work. So what's going on in this psalm basically is this. He first of all addresses all those who know him and says you ought to praise him because of what you see in his word and in his world. Then he turns his attention to everybody in the world and says you ought to fear him because of what we know from his word and because of what we know from what he has done, his word and his world and his works. So, with that in mind, let's sort of walk through these verses. Verse 1 says, Rejoice in the Lord, O ye righteous, for praise him from the upright uh, is beautiful. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make melody to him with an instrument of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. For the word of the Lord is right, and all his works are done in truth. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters by the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouse. Now this is the part to believers to the righteous in verse 1. What is he saying? Well, first of all, he gives a command. And the command, basically, is that you praise the Lord. He says, rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. Now, I need to make a comment about that little word, beautiful. It can mean beautiful. But in this passage, as most agree, It's really saying something like it's fitting. It's fitting. It's appropriate for the righteous to rejoice in the Lord, and basically he means praise him. That sometimes in the Psalms, the second line explains the first, and I think that's the case here. So he says rejoice in the first part of verse 1, and then he quickly adds praise. So the real point is that we praise the Lord. And that, he says, is fitting. Now, he says in verse 2, praise him with the harp. Make melody to him with an instrument of ten strings. So we should praise the Lord with musical instruments. Oh, that's interesting. He even mentions the harp and an instrument of ten strings. Now, as you know, some musical instruments have strings and some have percussion like drums and so forth. And according to the Psalter, the Psalms, we ought to be using all of the musical instruments. Is that what that's saying? So we use one. It's called a piano. Now what kind of an instrument is that? 
That's a stringed instrument. I know it doesn't look like it, but that's a, am I right? It's a stringed instrument, right? So what do we need? We need percussion, right? Now let me talk about that for a second. When I first came to this church, in the providence of God, we had a praise team made up of all professional musicians. And this church exploded. We had uh, 14 people the first service I came, and very shortly thereafter we were running 80. One pastor said it was the fastest growing church in the valley. Then one by one, those professionals left. Uh, I think they ended up in a, some town called Nashville. Um, at any rate, we then sat down and talked about what to do next. And we had a couple of options. I'm talking about the elders. And we decided we could go hire professional musicians. Or we could say, no, we don't want to go that route. That we're not going to become a professional uh, church. We don't want musicians to come in just because they're getting paid. Paying them is not the issue. The issue is we don't want them here for that reason. We want them to. We want them to be part of this congregation because a priority for us is that this be a family. Yes. Do you think we're a family? Yes. I mean, you ever seen a church like this in your life? No. I mean, I'm, I've had people more than one tell me they walked in the door. Matter of fact, I had a fellow who's sitting here right now, tell me he walked in the door and he immediately knew something was different. And I thought he was talking about my preaching. <laughs> but he said, it was the feeling I had of all, these people really love each other. And I thought, shucks, he didn't even get to the sermon yet. <laughs> now I'm joking, of course. But I'm very serious about the fact that the emphasis in this church is teaching the scripture, which teaches us to love one another. And so we love one another and we pray for one another. And we've tried to create a family uh, congregation and we don't want anything to change that. And by the way, one of the things that's really taken that to the next level is that app class, which I'm thrilled with. If you don't go to that app class, you should, because that's where people are really getting to share with each other. Not a teaching class, it is, but it's not a lecture. All right, but let's get back to music. Um, so, what do we do for music? I've been praying for years, Lord, give us a drummer. Now, we're not talking about rock and roll music, so I don't get too excited. But we need, do we need a drummer? Yes, do. do we? Yes. Boy, that was weak. Uh, do we need a bass player? Do we? How about a how about a guitar? Yeah. It got louder and louder. All right. All right. Let me tell you a little story. I've been I've been this seriously. I've been I'm dead serious about this. I've been praying for this for years, Lord, and I and I've just stubbornly refused to go hire somebody, just to get a professional, just to do it. We don't have a professional church around here. In case you haven't figured that out, right? So if you're gonna if you're gonna minister in this church, you need to be part of the church. Amen. Amen. Well, I got a couple of people in mind. Matter of fact, I've talked to one of them repeatedly for years. Now, I started to preach on Psalm 33 a month ago, 
And I backed off and did something else. And then I went back to where I'd left off in the Psalter, and I've come to it logically. I mean, just chronologically, okay? I just happened to come to it today. It happens to talk about praising the Lord with stringed instruments. And the drummer and a bass player just walked in the door. Now, whether or not I can twist their arm is another problem. But they're here. <laughs> And there's a guitar player here. So I think we as a church need to praise the Lord with a stringed instrument and a few others besides. Amen? Amen. Now, I, I think it's biblical. I think we should do that. So I just thought I'd tell you that story. Now, look at the next verse. It says, uh, sing to him a new song. Boy, let me tell you, this passage of Scripture rubs a lot of congregations the wrong way. Do you know what splits churches? Donald Gray Barnhouse said, when Satan was kicked out of heaven, he fell into the choir loft. <laughs> Music. And somebody else came along and said, and when he got kicked out of the choir loft, he fell into the janitor's closet. You know what causes problems in churches? Music and property. I mean, that's it. You know, everybody wants to squabble over those two things. Well, boy, this, this, this passage just really rubs people the wrong way because they don't want to sing new songs. we got to sing the old songs. Now, that's great. As a matter of fact, I've suggested to the praise team that we sing at least one hymn every Sunday. Those old hymns are fantastic, and we don't want to lose them. But I have no objection to singing a new song either. If you think about it, those old songs used to be new songs. What did you do then? You sang a new song. Now, he probably has in mind that when God gives a new blessing, you create a new song. Matter of fact, many will come to this passage and say that what he's saying is there's a new blessing, and for that new blessing, there is a new song. So we ought to be singing some of the old stuff and some of the new stuff. I think we ought to sing it all. So, but oh, look at this. He says, um, sing a new song, verse 3, play skillfully with a shout of joy. So he's really saying to believers, you ought to praise the Lord, and this is the way you ought to do it. You ought to do it with a lot of instruments, and you ought to do it with new songs, but you ought to do it skillfully. You ought to do it skillfully. Somebody has pointed out that... Uh, our praise should be fresh and skillful, not sloppy. God is worthy of the best in expressions of praise as well as all the things that we do for him. It ought to be done skillfully. We ought to have people uh, who know how to play. They ought to practice and they ought to play skillfully. If there's any passage I know of about music in a church, it's this one. This ought to be the job description for a praise team in a church. Mm -hmm. Praise the Lord, that's first. Sing some new songs and do it with stringed instruments. Now, that's the command. To the righteous, praise the Lord with a new song and stringed instruments. Got it? Now look at verse 4. 4, stop. What have I told you about the word 4? It's going to explain what he just said. In other words, 
Verses 1 through 3 are the commandment. Verses 4 and following is the reason I gave you this commandment. And the reason is this. The word of the Lord is right, and his work is done in truth. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the water by the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouse uh, houses. Now, the point is, you ought to praise the Lord because of what you've seen in his word, that's verse 4, and uh, what he's done in creation, his works, in verse 6. So let me talk about that for a minute. What do you see in his word? Well, what you see in his word is that um, the word is right. He loves righteousness and justice, and the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. So you come to the word, and what do you see? You see righteousness and justice and goodness. Now, let me make a comment about the word goodness. That Hebrew word actually means mercy. Uh, some even translate it loyal love. Now, I find that most interesting. Did you see that? What you see in the word is the Lord loves righteousness, justice, and mercy. Is that what's going on in this passage? Now, let me tell you another story. Many years ago, we used to have the Wednesday night Bible study in the fireside room. And um, I was pointing out that in Exodus... Uh, I think it's 34, Uh, the Lord was showing himself to Moses, and he passed by, and then Moses listed all the things about the Lord. I think there's seven of them, as I recall, And, and and you can cluster them. I mean, clearly, on one side is justice and righteousness, and on the other side is love and mercy, kindness. I pointed out, what I'm about to say is very important. You listening? You can reduce this whole book of the Bible to those those virtues. If this book teaches anything, it teaches God is holy, Leviticus 11, and God is love, 1 John 4. And those two things pop up over and over and over and over again. So that uh, God is holy, and around that, clustered around that, is justice and righteousness. And, and God is love, and clustered around that is grace and mercy. And those two things come up over and over and over. If I were to expound that, it would take us till dinner time, and I'm dead serious. And I remember sitting in the fireside room pointing that out, And there was a fellow sitting there who said to me, yeah, as a matter of fact, that's all through the Psalms. Now, I knew it was in Exodus. I knew it was in several other places, but I didn't know that. And that fellow's sitting here this morning. And do you remember telling me that? That was a great, that was a, that was, I've never forgotten it. And it's affected the way I've read the Bible ever since. And in every sense, I find it all, it's all over the place especially in the Psalms. It is all over the place. If you want to be God-like, if you want to be Christ-like, let me tell you what that amounts to. It amounts to being righteous, 
and loving all at the same time. The Lord loves righteousness and his goodness fills the earth. So when you see the righteousness and mercy of God, what should you do? Praise the Lord. Then he says in verse 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and the host of all them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters, which means he collects them, and he lays them up in the deeps as storehouses. So uh, verses 6 and 7 are simply talking about creation. And it's saying, and he's jumped from the word of the Lord is right in verse 4, to the word of the Lord, by the word of the Lord he made heavens and earth in verse 6. So he's talking about the word, and he's talking about God's world. And he's saying, you look at the world, and you see God's power. He made them by the word of his mouth. He just spoke, and it came into being. And he gathers the oceans. He collects them. He restricts them. He limits them so that they, in in a sense, to protect us. And that's the point of verse 7. But what I want you to see is that he addresses the righteous in verse 1. He tells the righteous to praise him. He then says, I'm going to give you reasons, and there are two. One is you see in his word his righteousness and his kindness and his goodness, and you see in his world his power, which is to protect us, actually. So, those who know the Lord should praise the Lord, because his word is right and his works are true and justice and kind. The point is, if you're a believer... You should praise the Lord because of what you see in his word and because of creation. We should be praising the Lord. And I say we don't praise the Lord enough. You agree? We ought to be praising the Lord all day. Every time you go outside, look at the creation and praise God for his goodness, his mercy, his righteousness. And his justice. We thank the Lord when he does something for us. We should praise the Lord for his righteousness, his justice, his mercy, his kindness. Got it? All right. Now I am going to change from talking to a small group of people in one church to addressing the whole world. If I could be on TV and everybody in the world were listening, this is what I would say. Verse 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Now, when it says fear the Lord, it's not exactly talking about being terrified although that could, under some circumstances, be included. I did a little study once of the word fear of the Lord, especially in the book of Proverbs, and it really includes more the idea of awe and reverence. As a matter of fact, in this passage, that's clear, because the second line explains the first. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe. Standing in awe is the same as fear. So in the idea is reverence, respect, and awe. However, however, 
It includes fear. There is that element in the word, and it can't be dismissed. It's just that it's not the terror, unless you step out of line. It's the idea of awe and reverence. So here's the message. Believers should praise the Lord, and everybody on this planet ought to fear the Lord. Amen? That's what we've lost in this country, is the fear of God. But this passage says, all the world should fear the Lord. Now that's the command, or the call. In verse 9, he gives the reason. For he spoke and it was done, he commanded, and it stood fast. In other words, he is saying that the reason is, uh, he spoke, and, and this is the worlds were created. This is actually going back to verse 6, the word of the Lord, uh, by the word of the Lord, heaven's were made, and the host of all of them with the breath of his mouth. So that's what he's talking about in verse 9. He spoke. He just mentioned that earlier. He spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. So he is saying, you ought to look at, if you're, I don't care who you are, if you're a member of the human race, you ought to look at creation, and you ought to fear the Lord when you see his mighty power. Then he says this, The Lord brings the counsel of nations to nothing. He makes the plans of people of no effect. Now, he's still talking about God's work, only he's not talking about it in creation. He's talking about it among nations. And he is saying, in essence, there are nations... Uh, matter of fact, throughout history, there have been nations, ungodly nations, that have collaborated to thwart the, the thwart God and ruin his people. But, he says, God brings that to nothing. If I may borrow the words of Robert Burns, the best laid schemes of mice and men come to nothing if they're opposed to God because he ultimately frustrates the clever plots hatched by God's opponents. So what's the point? It's back in verse 8. You should fear the Lord, because if you have plans against him, he brings those to nothing. But there's more. Verse 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, his plans of, the, of his heart to all generations. So he brings to nothing the plans of nations, but he brings to fruition his own plans. That because God has spoken, the earth and heavens have come into existence. What he decrees happens. Therefore, all peoples of the earth should fear him. God's plans spoil the plans of the wicked nations, but his purposes are sustained no matter what people endeavor to do. So surely a God with such powerful words and work should be feared. Verse 8, that's the point. Fear the Lord. Then he says this, but you know what? God's powerful. He created the world. God's powerful. He stops nations. God's powerful. He can bring his own plans to fruition. But let me tell you about the Lord. Let me tell you about the Lord. He blesses people. And that's what everybody on this planet needs to know. God blesses people. Look at verse 12. 
Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. So he's powerful, he's just, but he's merciful. And in his mercy, he blesses. He blesses. He blesses. And everybody needs to know that. Everybody needs to know that God blesses. Who does he bless? Oh, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Now, you've heard me say this before, but look at the verse carefully. Look at the word Lord. How is it spelled? All capitals. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. When you see that in the Bible, what does it mean? Well, we don't know how to pronounce it, but that's the personal name of God. Some used to call it Jehovah. And modern scholars say it should be pronounced Yahweh. The point is, it's nations who know the Lord. Not nations who know God. Nations who know the Lord. Nations who know the Lord. And according to the New Testament, you can only do that through Jesus Christ. So people who know the Lord, he blesses. Now, I think verse 12 is probably primarily referring to Israel. And I say that because the last part of the verse says, the people he has chosen as his inheritance. That's clearly Israel. That's said elsewhere in the scripture. But it's said in the context of people, all the people on the earth, all the inhabitants of the world. So given that, I'm going to say that while he is primarily talking about Israel, he certainly blesses people that know him, any people, Jew or Gentile. Now, he, he pontificates on that. And he says in uh, verse uh, 11, I'm sorry, verse 13, the Lord looks from heaven and he sees all the sons of men. From the place of his dwelling, he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. Now, I think it's fascinating that verse 8 talks about everybody. Verse 13 talks about all the sons of men. So he's clearly in this passage now talking about everybody, and yet he slides in that verse in verse 12 about Israel, and that's what leads me to say, but I can apply that to everybody. All right. So all that verses 13 and 14 are saying is, the Lord sees... Now, he wants to bless, so he's looking to see who he can bless. What does that mean? You ought to stand in awe. You ought to fear the Lord, because he sees. Then, he says, he fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. And again, the point is, nothing escapes his notice. He sees everything, the thoughts and the intents of the heart, so what's the point? Well, in this section, the point is you should stand in awe. On one, in one sense, he creates the world, the universe, controls the oceans. And on another level, he sees. He sees the thoughts, the heart, the intent. He knows. He sees. He knows. Matter of fact, he says in verse 16, the king is saved. No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. So he says, I know, I, I'm, I know. You, you think your safety is in having a big army. Well, let me just tell you 
that no king is saved by a big army or delivered by great strength. As a matter of fact, all along the line of history, uh, this verse has been verified. The strongest battalion, someone has said, melts like snowflakes when God is against them. At the at Battle of Arbella, the Persian host numbered between 500,000 and a million men, but they were utterly put to rout by Alexander's band of 50,000. Once the mighty uh, Darius was soon vanquished, Napoleon led more than a half a million men into Russia, but the terrible winter left the army a mere wreck and their leader a soon prisoner on a rock called St. Helens. No army can withstand the Lord. He sees and he knows. So you should do what? Stand in awe. Reverence the Lord. But he comes back to the fact. Well, he says, more, uh, verse 17, A horse is vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. Uh, we wouldn't say that today. Uh, in the ancient world, they depended on the army and the horses. Today we would say our nuclear force and our bank account. And he's saying, that's not what's going to protect you. This is what everybody needs to know. But remember, he said in verse 12, blessed is the nation. And he comes right back to that, it seems to me, in verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. He's back to fear. On those who hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Boy, that verse sort of ties this little subsection together. It starts out that you should fear the Lord. You should stand in awe of him. And it mentions the fact that he sees, he knows, he knows what's going on down to the intents of your heart. And so he is suggesting then that what you need to do is hope in him to keep you from the alive in famine. Because the eye of the Lord, which is a figure of speech for the fact that he's all seeing, he knows everything. So you should depend on his mercy and not your money. You should depend on his grace and not your bank account. And that's the point. So in this little subsection, the whole world should fear the Lord because his word is reliable. And he does what he says he's going to do. So verse 9 says, he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. I don't very often talk about our nation. But I now have biblical warrant to do it. Does this verse give me the power to talk about the nation of America? You see verse 8? Blessed is the nation I got biblical warrant. So I'm going to talk about America for a minute. I, told you, I, I talked to you. What's your job in this passage? What's the job of the righteous? Praise. praise. What's the job of everybody? Stand in awe. Why should you praise the Lord? Because of his word and his world, his works. 
Why should you be in awe? Because of his word and his works. So based on that, I think America needs the word of God. I think the greatest need in America is a return to the word of God. And secondly, the greatest need in America is to return to the God of the word. This nation was built by people who believed the book. That determined the culture until just a few short years ago. That it has been traditional that if you're going to give an inaugural address as the President of the United States, you're going to quote the Bible. Well, let me tell you what is the biggest danger of this country, and it's not Russia and it's not China. It's that we're getting further and further and further away from the Word of God. So somebody said, where was God when Columbine happened? I'll tell you where God was. The school system kicked out the Bible and they kicked out God and God wasn't there. That's why it happened. I'm telling you, America, America, hear me. You need the word of God and you need the God of the word, the Lord God of the word. Andrew Jackson said, the Bible is the rock upon which our republic rests. Daniel Webster said, only if we abide by the principles taught in the Bible will our country go on prospering. And George Washington said, it is impossible to rightly govern without God in the Bible. The strength of this country is not in the economy. The strength of this country is not in its army. The strength of this country is blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Amen. Amen. A man visiting Washington, D.C. for the first time was fascinated by the impressive government buildings. After seeing one government building after another, he thought to himself, this is where the power lies. This is the most important and powerful place in the United States. A few weeks later, he was the guest in the home of a farmer. He watched the family as the children came from home, from school, and did their chores. At the dinner table, he saw the, fibo- the father read from the Bible. He watched them all bow their head, and the farmer thanked God for his goodness to them as a family. He prayed for the church and their friends and prayed for the president and our government officials. Then he went to bed that night. That man thought about what he had seen in Washington and what he had just witnessed in that simple farmhouse. And he concluded he was mistaken about Washington, D.C. The power of the company does not allow, is not from the capital. The power of this company is found in Christian homes. America, we need to return to the word of God and the God of the word. Forgive me, I feel this very strongly. The greatest need in this country is not politicians. The greatest need in this country is for pastors to preach the word of God. And the problem is not we've got pastors with uh, politicians with crazy ideas. It's we've got pastors that are preaching psychology and not the scripture. All right. I'll calm down now. 
He ends this passage by telling you what he's committed to. So we're down toward the end of the passage. Look at verse 20. Our souls wait for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart shall rejoice in him because we trust in his holy name. For your mercy, O Lord, is upon us just as we hope in you. Now, what's going on is this. He's talked to believers. He's talked to everybody on the planet. And now he says, as for us, this is what we're going to do. We're going to wait on the Lord. We're going to wait on the Lord because he's our help. Did you see that? Did you see that verse? 3320, did you see that? What does it say? He's our help. What do you need help with next week? And where are you going to get it? It's the Lord. And he's our shield. So what are we going to do? That's the commitment. The reason is in verse 21. We're going to rejoice in him because we trust him. So we're going to wait for him, verse 20, and we're going to trust him, verse 21. Why? Because your mercy, O Lord, is upon us just as we hoped in you. So first he says we're going to wait on the Lord. Secondly, he says we're going to trust in the Lord. And thirdly, he says we're going to pray for your mercy. Maybe that's what we ought to do for our country. Certainly what we ought to do for ourselves. We don't come because we deserve it. We come because you're a merciful father. We can plead your mercy. So we call on your mercy. As the members of the Continental Congress were assembled in Philadelphia to consider the adoption of the Declaration of Independence, King George III of England also met with the Prime Minister Lord North. The latter urged a policy of sweet reasonableness and conciliation for the colonies. The king, however, rebuffed his Prime Minister, saying, The American rebels must be subdued. We shall grant these ungrateful people nothing except that they ask on their knees with a halter around their necks. The situation that confronted the Continental Congress was therefore desperate. The armies of Washington were suffering severe reverses. If he was defeated, every signer of the proposed Declaration of Independence would be hanged as a traitor. Nevertheless, because they considered liberty and justice more important than life, the members of the Continental Congress signed their names to that now famous document. Mm -hmm. Sometime later, a man named Isaac, who lived near the battlefront, approached Washington's camp. As he did, he heard someone agonizing in prayer. Coming nearer, he saw that it was none other than George Washington himself, prostrated on his knees in the snow, his cheeks wet with tears. He was asking God for assistance and guidance. When Isaac returned home, he told his wife, George Washington will succeed. The Americans will certainly secure their independence. When his wife Asked how he could be so sure, he responded, Hannah, I heard him pray today, and the Lord will certainly hear such a fervent, earnest petition. Yes, I'm sure he will. That's what we need to do. 
We need to pray for this country. It's not my vote that's going to make a difference, especially if you live in California. That wasn't in my sermon preparation. It's my prayer that's going to make a difference. And that's what we ought to be doing. So, Psalm 33 is saying when you consider God's word and God's works in the world, then you, if you are a believer, should praise the Lord. And if you're just an ordinary human being anywhere on the planet, you should stand in awe. And as a result of that, all of us should wait on the Lord. We should trust the Lord and we should pray to the Lord. That's what we should be doing. So if you contemplate God's works in the world as revealed in his word, you will praise him and trust him more. Our problem is we're too busy thinking about other things. We don't have time to read the word. We have less time to contemplate the word. We pay no attention to what God is doing in the world. We're too busy doing other things. So I say to you, we need to remember that it's what God is doing in the world, not what government is doing in the world. And we need to pray that God works in spite of the government. Roger W. Babson, the famous financier and statistician, visited once years ago the president of Argentina. In his own words, he said, One day we sat in the sun parlor overlooking the river. Suddenly he turned to me and said, Mr. Babson, I've been wondering why it is that South America with all of its great natural advantages, is so far behind North America, notwithstanding that South America was settled first. Then he went on to tell how the forest of South America had 286 variety of trees that can be found in no book of botany because no one has classified them. He told me about the many ranchers that had thousands of acres of alfalfa. He mentioned mines of iron, copper, coal, silver, gold, and all those great rivers with water power rivaling Niagara Falls. Why is it that with all of these natural resources, South America is so far behind? Being a guest, he said, I told him, Mr. President, what do you think is the reason? And the president replied, I have come to the conclusion that South America was settled by the Spanish who came in search of gold. But North America was settled by the Puritans who went there primar primarily in search of God. I say to you, that's the issue. What are you seeking? Gold or God? And I would add, America, you need prayer more than pride, God more than greed, righteousness more than some of these ridiculous ideas. And that goes for the nation, everybody on this planet, and us. 
Amen Amen. and amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us through your word. Thank you for letting us know that the heavens declare the glory of God. And Lord, we confess that so often we go after the gold, the material things of life, and not the spiritual. And Lord, our country is getting further and further away from these very precious, significant truths. So we pray for our country, pray for return to the scripture and to you. We pray for ourselves that it might begin with us. In Jesus' name, amen.